I've been blessed with the opportunity to speak tonight out of Titus 1 um, and just discuss and examine the qualification of elders. Uh, Tim asked me to do that, and I thought, I'm not one, so let's, let's give it a shot. Uh, no, and you know, he said it's, it's, good that, uh, it's good that elders would sit under the examination of this scripture. Uh, and I thought that was, that was good logic. Um, so I said, yeah, let's do it. Um, and so after about uh, a month and a half of uh, worry and uh, study, uh, here we are. And so uh, let's jump right in. Um, I've got a, got a lot to say. Uh, and Tim's like, hey, man, you need to make sure you consider the nursery workers. Um, and so... I'm doing that now, considering them. <clears throat> I'm going to go through a lot. Sometimes it's going to go really fast. Um, and then I, there's some things I do want to take time to really chew on and, and dig into. Um, so bear with me, and let's go. Um, I want to start by just saying that uh, the office of elder isn't held in every church. Uh, a lot of churches nowadays don't have that position. They have pastors and deacons. Um, a lot of Southern Baptist churches especially have that set up, and, and that's not necessarily biblical. Um, and that's, It's hard to say to your family members or your friends and to say, hey, the leadership in your church, the leadership in your church isn't what Scripture says it should be. Um, that's a hard conversation to have. And that's, I think that's why so many churches just stick to that. Uh, that one pastor with a board of deacons that kind of oversee everything and are the leaders. But if you look through Scripture, you'll see the office of elder uh, all over the place. Uh, James uh, writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, um, and he says, Is anyone among you sick? Uh, let him call out to the elders. Let the elders pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And that's James uh, 5.14. Uh, Paul speaks to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20. Um, Peter writes to exiles in various regions, uh, and he says, I exhort the elders among you. Uh, so he's assuming that in all of these areas, there's elders appointed and leading this church. Um, we see at the end of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, uh, that the apostles and the elders are working together um, as leaders of that church and the area. Uh, and they decide together to send a letter and representatives um, out to um, Antioch. Uh, we see a pattern of Paul appointing elders in the churches that he plants. Uh, we'll see that again tonight. Um, and, then, and then finally, we see in Titus that Titus was left in Crete with this specific task, to appoint elders, um, not just here and there, but we'll see it's in every city uh, on the island. Uh, so it seems that the, that the office of elder was the norm, um, to have somebody who um, oversaw the church. They didn't just preach and submit themselves to a council of other men, but there was a, a plurality of elders even, is assumed. Um, so... We see the office of elder in Scripture, um, but what is an elder? Um, tonight we're going to look at the qualifications, but first I just want to briefly go over um, well, what an elder is. Uh, so here's a, here's a, a, a little nugget. Uh, elders teach and lead the church in sound doctrine while correcting those who are against God through their words and actions. Um, Ephesians 4 uh, says that they're part of the equipment of the saints. We read that earlier, um, and, and I, I brought that up to Casey because I um, originally I really wanted to spend a lot of time there, but that's it. First uh, <laughs> uh, Timothy four uh, says that they're to command and teach the things of God. Um, not only are they supposed to teach, but they're supposed to set an example uh, in their speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Uh, so we see they're not just teachers, but they are they're leaders through example. Uh, we see in, in 1 Timothy 5, uh, 17, that there's some elders who hold the role um, of administrator. 
specifically. They oversee things to make sure uh, things get done the way they're supposed to. And so those guys are um, maybe not in the forefront, right? Maybe they aren't the main teaching elder of a, of a congregation, but they're still holding the spiritual um, authority and oversight over the congregation. Um, you see in Titus 1.9 uh, that they're supposed to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, and then finally, 1 Peter 5 um, says that they exercise oversight. Right? So they're, they're watchful. They're watchers over the church. Um, now, I'm not going to address this point beyond right now, um, but I want to briefly say uh, that contrary to some major um, sects of Christianity, uh, we hold to um, elders being men. Um, <clears throat> this is in alignment with the text as it's written plainly. Uh, we'll see that they're to be husbands of one wives. Um, we will see uh, that not only is it explicitly stated that the pattern that God has laid out for men and women uh, in Scripture, uh, what we would call the order of creation, uh, in which men are called to be leaders and servants to those in their care. Um, we, we see that in the first century, uh, the first century, the first century, uh, this went without saying um, because of the social status that, that men and women held. It's very different than, than today. Um, and so today, to say that a, a woman can't be an elder, a pastor, a leader in that role uh, is countercultural, right? Um, I, have, I have family that holds dearly to that um, and would not be okay with that statement. Um, and in fact, there's dissension because of that. <clears throat> All right, so, so we see that it's countercultural. Um, I'd be considered chauvinistic or hostile. Um, but I believe that Scripture teaches that men and women are called to different roles um, and that those different roles perfectly support each other. Um, and not just in the church, but, but in all areas. Um, and, and so that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, because if we dive in there, what's Tim say? If, we, if I go there, I have to go there. Um, so instead, take that and go to LT and ask, <clears throat> just not mine, uh, no, <laughs> um, go to Casey's, and uh, he loves to dwell over deep things. Um, so we'll also see that uh, not only is that a pretty strict requirement, um, but every other requirement that's laid out in Scripture for elders is heavy and strict. Um, this, is, this is the end of my introduction, so let me just say this. If you've sat under an elder um, that's failed, that's disqualified himself, um, or his family's disqualified him, um, or he's been accused of things that he wasn't able to defend against, uh, that's, it's okay. It's not okay that that happened, but it's okay that you were there. It's okay that you had that leadership, uh, because ultimately, who's the head of the church? Christ, right? Ephesians 1 uh, says that Christ has been placed above all rule and authority. All things have been placed beneath his feet, and Christ has been given to the church as their head, right? And so if we look back, or if we ever find ourselves in a situation where we've leaned on an elder um, and we've been let down, right? We can step back from that and look at eternity and see that Christ is the head and that man is, is bound to fail without Christ. All right? So, considering those things, what an elder is, what an elder is not, um, and who Christ is in comparison to those elders, um, let's look at what it takes for a church to appoint godly elders. Uh, go ahead and turn with me to Titus 1. Uh, we're going to be in verses 5 through 9. I didn't put it up on the PowerPoint, and I, I just realized. 
the main text. Um, <laughs> I have like four or five other ones, so don't look at the screen. I guess just, just listen or find it in your own uh, copy of God's Word. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version. <clears throat> it says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Father, I ask that right now you would just move. Um, Lord, move in me uh, and, and bring clarity. Uh, Lord, move through this congregation um, and bring focus, Lord, uh, on nothing but your word uh, and what you see fit to reveal to us tonight. Um, more than anything, God, I ask that you be glorified here now. Um, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> the first thing that we're going to see is uh, that the appointment of elders is an intentional and weighty opportunity for the church. <clears throat> we see that uh, in the fact that Titus is left there for that specific purpose. Um, we see that he is left there to put things in order and to appoint elders. It's not like the appointment of elders was just a happy byproduct of planting churches, right? They don't just fall into place. They're an intentional pursuit. Um, they're a condition of a properly ordered church, okay? So a church who sits under the Word of God properly, who responds to it properly, who accepts the conviction of the Holy Spirit, is going to find themselves longing for that leadership, right? <clears throat> the appointment of elders is intentional for these three reasons, right? They're part of the proper organization of the church, um, now, think if you're a parent, um, or if you're not a parent, make this work in your own brain. Um, how much effort do you put into finding a suitable babysitter? Or how much effort do you uh, put into ensuring your kids go to the school that you want them to? Um, or older parents, how much effort did you put into helping your children find a career that suited them well? Um, it, it, those things are, are difficult, right? Uh, or think of how difficult it is to find a caregiver for, um, for a grandparent or a dear friend uh, that is in need. It, you don't want just somebody to walk in and start influencing. Right? You don't want somebody just to walk in and start throwing out ideas and to speak with authority or to put their hands to work on the things in your loved one's life. Right? So how much more important is it that we find suitable elders for the church, for the bride of Christ? Right? Really think of that. If you think of who the church is, there's a weight to picking who is going to lead it. Not pick, but a, but a point. That's the word I want to use. I want to be pointed here. The, the appointment of elders. <clears throat> All right, so think of the time and effort that you, that you go into uh, venting a, a preschool or a daycare or uh, a babysitter. Um, you know, and not everybody does. But think of, think of the weight that children carry in, in the hearts and minds of their parents. Right? That's what a church should feel for the elders. Uh, secondly, we see that elders are stewards of the church. If you look in verse 7, 
Uh, it says it right there. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Uh, man, a steward is it's a great, it's a great word. Um, okay, I wanted to go really into it. We're not going to. A steward is someone that can be left on their own. All right? A steward is somebody that can um, hold responsibility, that can properly organize things, um, and can be left and trusted to do that. Um, I think that the best example that I can think of, and maybe because it's, it's fresh in my mind having listened to sermons and, and read it, uh, is Joseph, right? Uh, look at uh, Genesis 39 with me. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer, or steward, of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. Now listen to this. Listen to this. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. And so Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of Joseph, Potiphar had no concern about anything except for what? He had, man, he just had to decide what he wanted to eat for dinner, right? Like that, who would be a better steward than that? I, we can't even make that decision. You know, we've got five kids saying, I want this and this and this and this, and it's always pizza or pancakes. Um, you know, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's a hard decision to make, evidently. Uh, but imagine if you had somebody in your life running everything, and all you had to do was decide, man, what am I going to eat today? It's like being on vacation every day, 24-7. Um, I'm not saying that's the ideal life, uh, but it's pretty close. All right, so we see, we see Joseph is a great example of what a steward is. Um, as somebody who is trustworthy, uh, who causes things to succeed, um, who wants the best uh, for where they are. Right? That wasn't Joseph's home. He was a slave. He was a piece of the property. Right? But he did everything he could to make it thrive. Right? Elders ought to be seen in the same light. They ought to be doing everything they can to make the church thrive. Right? Uh, thirdly, we'll see that um, it's weighty because elders both teach and rebuke. Um, and you might think, so what? Well, think about if you have somebody just run up in here and start telling you what you're doing wrong. Right? You, I mean... The first thing you do is say, like, man, who are, who are you? <laughs> we were at a soccer game the other day. I, <laughs> it's popping my mind. We were at a soccer game the other day, and there was a, a, a kid had done something wrong, um, some foul. And the ref called it, and the kid goes up to the ref, and he starts to, what are you doing? I don't... And the referee said, who are you? And the kid just stopped, and he said, I'm the referee. And he called a foul, and they just kept playing. You know, and it's that, it's that idea, right? Like, the, he has that authority. He's been put in that place. He's had that proper training, right? The elders, you need to be trusted. You need to be trusted and have that authority and have that training to properly exercise that authority, right? Um, so the ESV has translated uh, the word uh, as instruct, um, but the word is in, in the Greek is uh, parakaleo, uh, and it means, that this is the, the teach, it means to call somebody near. Um, it means to bring them close by, to offer them comfort. Um, it means to exhort them, to offer encouragement. Um, so elders must engage in teaching sound doctrine and encouraging their congregation uh, to dig into the things that will aggressively push them to Christ. Okay? Um, and then again, not only do they teach, but they must correct improper doctrine, right? And so I've, uh, I've been blessed to witness um, 
one of our elders say, uh, 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 no. Um, and it, as soon as it came out of somebody's mouth, cor- correct it, stop it, and say, that's not, that's not right. Um, and just keep, move right on. And, and I, was so, I was so blessed in that moment uh, to have the, the trust um, in that elder to see them act in that way and uh, to, put, to put this concept into practice. Um, so you'll see as we, as we move on um, that, yeah, it's weighty to appoint an elder, and, and we have to be intentional. Um, but you might say, what? No. Um, the, the stuff we're going to look at tonight is, is literally the minimum. It's the minimum qualifications for what an elder should be. Um, right, first, uh, when, when this was written, uh, the church was fresh, right? It was less than 100 years old. It was less than 60 years old, right? It was the first century A.D., and everybody did not know what was going on. All they knew was that Christ had come and saved them from their sins. The Messiah had come. Prophecy had been fulfilled. And they were excited, and they were gung-ho, and they were ready to get to work. Right? But they did not know what it took to lead that. Uh, and more than that, there was not an abundance of men qualified to lead it. Um, if you think, or if you, if you know very much um, about most religions in the first century, um, a lot of them are rooted in, uh, were rooted in sexual morality. That was, that was worshipful to their deities, to their idols. Um, and even in, in Jewish culture, it was not uncommon for a man to marry and divorce and marry and divorce and marry and divorce. Um, if you think of the passage where they say, well, Jesus, is it wrong for us to divorce our wives? You know, Moses said it's okay. Well, Jesus explains, like, no, Moses didn't say it was okay. Moses said, you're going to do it anyways. I tell you not to. I tell you what God's brought together, let no man tear apart, right? And so you see this, this ideo- ideology of divorce, right? They, they, I, I, they set it up on a pedestal, and they said, now I can, have, I can have this, and when I'm tired of that, I can come over here and have this, or I can go back to that, and that's not okay. All right, so you see, in the first century, there was a lot of guys who were not one-woman men, and, and that's something we'll, we'll look at later. Um, not that divorce is going to disqualify you to be an elder, but it's the idea of the flippancy in a relationship. It's the idea of not being true to the covenant marriage that God brings you into. Um, uh, secondly, we'll see that there's so many godly qualities uh, that every Christian should have, and that elders as leaders are going to exemplify. Um, so if you read through these requirements and you think, man, these are severe, you're right. Um, but remember that each one of us is going to be being transformed into the image of Christ. We're going to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, um, like 2 Corinthians 3 says. So <clears throat> as we jump into these, just remember that. Remember that, yes, we hold our elders to these, but also we need to reflect on these qualifications. Uh, so let's look at verses 6 and 7. It's not up there, but I'm going to read it. <laughs> if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. At a minimum, Elders must be above reproach and loving leaders of their family. At a minimum, elders must be above reproach and loving leaders of their family. Now, I'm going to condense some of these things into that, those two phrases. And I'm going to say that being above reproach applies to their personal character, and being loving leaders of their family applies to how their families are ran and how they're led. Um, so to be above reproach means to live your life in accordance with the scriptures in such a way that is the only fault that people can find in you. Right? 
To be above reproach means to live your life in accordance with the scriptures in such a way that it's the only fault people can find in you. Um, that's a pretty hefty statement, right? Like that's a difficult thing to, to think. Um, now, if you remember a couple weeks ago when Tim went through what it looks like for deacons to be blameless, it's the same concept, right? Are we going to fail? Are we going to fail in this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Should we stop striving for it? No, never. Okay. Think of uh, Daniel, right? Daniel 6.5. This is, again, man, this is the epitome of that. These men said, these are the guys trying to get Daniel. They're trying to say, hey, king, Daniel's bad. Let's kill him. Uh, and it doesn't work. These men said, we won't find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They essentially said, man, this dude is so great. He's so obedient. He's so wise. He's so kind. He's so loving that the only way we're going to get him in trouble is if it has to do with the way he worships his God. Right? I... I, man, I would love for somebody to say that about me. I wouldn't, not to my face, because I'd be like, that's right. Uh, no. <laughs> and then you meet pride. No. Um, I, you know, that's, it'd be so great to, to be able to reflect on that. I, I was talking to my neighbor, and, um, and he was speaking about his, um, his ancestors, for, for lack of a better word, the previous generation. And he was talking about his mom and dad. Um, and it was beautiful, man, just to, just to hear the praise he had for them. They were godly folks, and they raised him to love God and to serve God and to love others and to serve others. And I thought, man, I, I said, I hope, I hope that my kids speak like this someday. I hope my kids say these things someday. And he said, oh, they will. And I was like, no, you don't know my kids. Like, and, he's like, and then he went on like, no, I got whoopings all the time. And I was like, <laughs> we're not going there. Um, <laughs> so, but, but no, I mean, it, that's, that's the ideal, right? Be found without fault unless it's in how you worship God. Not that you're worshiping God wrong, but that the world says, man, we got we to gotta get this guy on something. Uh, Ephesians 5.3 says, But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So when people think of these things, sexual morality, all impurity, covetousness, right, your name should never be associated with those. Right? Anytime somebody thinks, like, man, who is, who is just so sexually immoral, immoral right, then your name should never come up in that conversation. It should never be a thought in their mind. That's how far away we should be from it. First uh, Peter 2 says to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? When they go to speak against you, everybody else is going to be like, no, man, they're great. Look at what they do. Look at how they glorify God with their actions. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I want to look so much like Jesus that those who don't know Jesus don't, can't recognize what I am. I, man, that's, that's hard. That's difficult. But that's what, that's what elders are called to, as a minimum, to be above reproach. Secondly, they're called to be a loving leader of their family. To be a loving leader means to be a lovingly devoted to one wife who is of good faith, children that are raised to know and love the Lord, and to lead both of those in the practices of hospitality, sober-mindedness, and self-control. Now, this is where I've taken some of the later qualifications and I've slapped them together with these earlier ones. Because I think that it's not enough for an elder to practice hospitality. It's not enough for an elder uh, to be sober-minded. It's not enough for an elder to practice self-control. They need to be leading others in that. Right? Most importantly, 
most importantly, their family. Um, so let's walk through what, what these phrases uh, mean. So to be the husband of one wife, um, I'm sure many of you have heard the nuance uh, that from the original language, it translates to be a one-woman man. Um, what that means is that there's a biblical devotion, right? Not a setting up on a pedestal, not a worshiping of, but a biblical devotion between one man and one woman, um, right? Husband and wife, and that's what defines it as a marriage. The elder must be conquering the temptation of the sin uh, of lust and sexual morality uh, continually, right? There must be ongoing victory in those areas. Uh, we see that in Matthew 5. Uh, the elder must be sacrificially loving his wife, leading and spurring her on in her sanctification, right? Think of Ephesians 5, 25, 26. Paul goes so far as to say that that's what it looks like for Christ to love the church. That, that man and woman, husband and wife, is what we see, is what we see, and what God sees is Christ loving the church. Okay? <clears throat> Secondly, their children are, are believers. Um, now, this is a call and response. You can answer this. Uh, okay. Who determines if someone is a Christian? God, right? Christ, the, the Holy Spirit. What role do you have as a parent to save your child? To, I mean, yeah, teach, right? Share the gospel. But ultimately, it is God. Right? And so when it says that their children are believers, how can we hold it against an elder if their children aren't saved? If the Holy Spirit hasn't poured out conviction on them, hasn't strengthened their heart to know Christ? I don't think you can. I think instead you can look at how, it should, how an elder is leading their children. Are they preaching to them? Are they teaching them the gospel? Um, when there is a, a, a disobedience um, or lacking piety in a child, uh, that meaning the proper respect for the things of God, um, or they're disrespectful to, to others, it's okay for children to have those things. It's not okay for a parent to say, it's okay for you to act like that. We can't measure the soul of a child. What we can measure is the response of the father. Is the father spending regular time in the word uh, with his unbelieving children? Is the father responding to those sins I just mentioned um, with a call to repentance? Right? Or are they just trying to correct the behavior? You see, an elder must lead their family in Scripture. An elder must lead their family in conviction, even those who do not believe in Christ. All right, and so I think that you can look at an elder and say, man, their kids aren't Christians, but he's pouring himself out constantly, speaking truth to them constantly, correcting their behavior in such a way that he calls it sin and wickedness and an issue of the heart, not of the hands. All right, for an elder to eventually have believing children, those children must be raised in the knowledge and admonishment of the Lord. Uh, and that is very quantifiable. You can measure that. You can look at that. You can see it in that family. All right, so this passage leaves uh, attention surrounding elders uh, who may have been divorced, or whose children are not believers, or maybe their wives are caught up in ongoing sin. Um, and, and these are things that personally you should consider, right? And, and to decide what you believe. Um, and then, like I said, go to LT and, and figure that out. Those are good, fun conversations to have uh, under the grace and mercy of the Lord, right? Not in arguments, but saying, oh, what does this mean, and how do we flesh that out? All right, where there's no tension is in the fact that elders must be above reproach, and they must be loving leaders of their family. Uh, thirdly, <clears throat> at a minimum, elders must conquer worldly responses. Um, I, spent, I spent a long time trying to come up with that point. Um, 
and I don't know. I think it, I think it really applies. I think it's great. <clears throat> right, so here we're going to see there's a contrast to a man that is above reproach. Um, if you look at the second part of verse 7, right, it says, he must not, and then just list them off. Be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Elders must not be self-willed or self-oriented. Consider the description here. An elder can't be arrogant, right? They can't respond with small regard for others. They can't be quick-tempered. Uh, that's rooted in impatience. Um, their response to situations are, are selfishly emotional, right? They blow up because they've been offended personally. Uh, they can't be a drunkard uh, or staying near wine is what that literally translates to. Um, this idea of habitually turning to drink. Um, I, th- I, I want to consider this. Uh, think of the weight that an elder has to carry. Um, I think a lot of people are ignorant uh, of what that really looks like. Um, preparing for sermons uh, is emotionally and mentally taxing. Uh, Offering counsel to broken, sinful people um, is spiritually and physically and mentally exhausting. Um, all right, so, so imagine a, a man, after encountering the heavy burden of someone's sin in, in their counseling, he returns home and he seeks some solace or some dulling of his mind with alcohol in place of the sustenance that comes from God's word and prayer right? That's why Ephesians 5 says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why seek to dull something when instead you can sharpen your mind and your soul on God's Word, right? And so, <clears throat> anyway, so it doesn't, it doesn't mean, and I just picked this because culturally it's, it's a stigma, right? It doesn't mean the elders can't have alcohol, Right? It says they can't be drunk. It means they can't be near to wine, right? That's not something that's seen with them. That's not, again, that's not something that's part of their character. Um, right? And I use that an example of a man returning home and, and instead of pursuing the things of God, seeking to dull the pain, right, that they're feeling, the, the stress that they're feeling, because, because I've seen that, right? So they can't be drunkards. <clears throat> they can't be violent. Uh, that means uh, eager to engage in a fight, always prepared for physical altercations or verbal altercations. Um, I have a... Okay, we're not going to get there. <clears throat> they can't be greedy for gain. This is the idea of always looking to turn a situation for their own good. Um, right? Instead, they, they must be servants. Right? They must be servants to all. Consider uh, with me 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, um, verses 19 and 22, 23. It says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in his blessings. Right, do you see that contrast? The wicked man who would respond in arrogance and anger or drunkenness or violence or greed, they're unfit to be elders. They're unfit. They disqualify themselves in those things. But a man who would say, I'll give everything up, everything that I care about, I'll give it away if Christ would be known. That's what we want to see. That's what we want to see in the character of our elders. They must instead forsake the worldly responses and and instead serve by practicing hospitality. Hospitality is the love for the saints and the sojourners, right? Those who are wondering, those who are lost, those who are not in the church. 
They must love good. In contrast to being greedy for gain, they're greedy for the good of others. Right? Romans 12 says that we ought to outdo one another in showing honor. Um, it's, it's hard to show honor, let alone do it better than others. Uh, they must be self-controlled in contrast to violent. They act with gentleness and meekness. Meekness is that proper response in every situation. I like to, I like to define meekness um, with this example. Um, if you know what a torque wrench is, it is a long wrench that lets you apply a lot of torque, right? But you can set it, you can dial it to only apply a certain amount. Um, you might say, why? Well, because if you apply too much torque to a, a nut and a bolt, you'll break it. You'll shear it right off, and it's not difficult to do. Not difficult to do. And so what that wrench does is it dials it back. It has this incredible um, opportunity. It has this incredible potential, right? But it applies what is appropriate, right? That's the idea of what meekness is. So, so an elder must apply what is appropriate in every situation. Um, they must be upright instead of dulling their mind with drink. Uh, he fills it with the things of God, and he abides in those. Uh, he must be seeking to be holy. Uh, that's living a, a life of purity. Um, you can write this down. It's, it's 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 1 through 8 is a great example of that, where Paul writes to that church and says, you're doing great, but don't stop. They must be disciplined. Um, ironically, you know, when you think of discipline, it's not necessarily self-control. Um, but that's what this literally translates into, is to have power over a thing, namely yourself. Right? They must have discipline. An elder must have conquered his worldly responses and shifted them to align with what God wills and desires for the leaders of his church. Fourthly, at a minimum, elders must maintain the truth of the gospel and apply it appropriately. At first, elders must hold firm to that trustworthy word. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, verse 9, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Essentially, elders must value the word of God and bind it to themselves. Right? This is a regular consumption of Scripture. This is not a, I went to seminary and so I took a survey course. This is not a, I do a daily devotion. This is a consuming God's word. Think of a cow. Think of a cow and how they just chew on cud all day. You ever see, like, their mouths just don't stop moving. That's what elders must do with the word of God. They must be continually digesting it. Um. <clears throat> And then they're going to apply that outwardly. Um, they do that in sound doctrine and teaching of sound doctrine. Uh, there's a few differences in, in this passage and the passage in 1 Timothy 3. Um, this one uh, doesn't mention that elders specifically have to be able to teach, right? It says that they will teach, though. <clears throat> They must understand clearly what Scripture says as a whole and be able to properly dissect it into manageable sections. Um, they need to study those deeply and clearly communicate their meaning and that application. Now, it shouldn't be hard for an elder to stand before a church, a congregation of Christians, and speak these truths if they're trying to explain it to four-year-olds at home. Um, because try and explain holiness to a four-year-old uh, and then come talk to me and tell me how you did it. Because... It's hard, right? So it's not hard to stand up here and speak to adults and to use big words that if you don't know, you can look up because four-year-olds can't. Okay, we're not going to keep going with that. All right, so they must, they must be able to properly dissect Scripture into bites and nuggets and then offer those so that you can understand them. Uh, secondly, elders must rebuke those who contradict that word, right? It's the role of an elder to contend for the faith. They speak out against culture and the world, and in their leadership, they address, they address those issues. On a more practical note, they're going to shepherd the flock by rebuking those that need it. 
Uh, when a member of the church carries improper or unorthodox theology, it's the role of the elder to address it. Uh, when a member of the church lives continually in habitual sin, it's the role of the shepherd, the elder, to address it. Now, can we see why the qualifications would be strict for an elder? To go to somebody and say, what you're doing is wicked and wrong. Right? What would you do if the referee didn't have any qualifications? If they didn't know how to play the game of soccer? I'd say, listen to the kid. Right? So when our elders come to us and say, hey, I see this pattern in your life. I see the way you speak to your children. I see the way you attend church. I see the way you speak in the grocery store. I, we should talk about these things. You, what do you need to do? You need to say, okay. Your elder needs to be trustworthy enough that you can hear them say those things and accept it well. Right? It shouldn't be because the elder is disqualified that you struggle to accept their correction. It should be because of your own sin. Uh, it takes a, a huge amount of character in a man, uh, a huge amount of discipline, um, and a long, steady life of loving service to properly address the sin of another and to properly teach the Word of God. Uh, number five, uh, and lastly, these standards may seem high, but they exist for all. Uh, look with me at First Peter um, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to stop real quick and say that I, I know all of you did it because Casey asked you to. You all read Titus five or six times this week. Um, and I hope that if you didn't, you will. And you'll see this pattern that Paul calls Titus to supplement his faith with these great works, with this wonderful action. Okay, so I think that that in 1 Peter, says right here, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will, be, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God has not called us Christians for impurity. He's called us in holiness. Elders are given these standards because they are necessary. To be able to stand before the congregation and say, this is what the Word of God says, and this is what the Word of God means. To be able to sit with a member of the church and say, God's not called you to this sin. They must be living these lives in pursuit of holiness. But also, they're very necessary because elders live their lives as an example to the church. Everything, every single one of these specifics that elders are called to, we are called to as individual Christians. Right? We're called to love and lead our families and children. Uh, think of Deuteronomy 4. Right? We're called to live upright and holy lives. We just saw that in 1 Peter 1. We're called to speak the truth to the dead and dying world, uh, Matthew 5.16. We looked at that last week with Leah's baptism. Um, we are called to, to come alongside of our brothers and sisters in their brokenness and to lift them up and encourage them. And uh, we see that in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 and 2. We just read that. Right? So let's take this passage. And let's lift our elders up, right? What are we, what are we going to do? What's our response to, to, to this? Right? We, we take this passage, we examine, and we encourage our elders, right? We need to examine them. 
why else would, would Paul say, hey, look, look for these things? We need to examine and encourage our elders, and we need to lift them up in prayer. And then we need to take this passage, and we need to examine our own hearts. Examine your own hearts and beg for conviction over these things. Right? Beg for conviction and ask not only to be convicted, but that God would help you to respond properly to that conviction. Um, that's, what, that's what I got. That's all I got. <laughs> um, this passage, man, it, it's... It's for the church. It's for the church. You can say that about every word in the Bible. This passage is for the church as a whole. If you read this and you think, man, elders have got it hard, you're right. But if you read this and you think, I don't have to do anything that that says, like you're so far from being right. So I want to close... I'm going to close with that. I'm going to close with those two statements, right? Elders that are here tonight, first, man, thank you. I guess that's hard work you guys are putting in. It's hard work. Thank you, right? Everybody else, examine yourself, right? I'm like, we're, we're going to sing in, in, a, in a minute. All right, you guys can come on. You guys can come on up. We're gonna sing. <laughs> I, I, you don't want me up here singing, so uh, we're gonna sing. And I, man, like we've got an altar, right? And this is like every time I've had the opportunity to preach, I, I close with this because I think it's a beautiful picture. We have an altar in the Bible, man. Altars were bloody, messy places, right? This is where sacrifices were made. Blood was poured out. Right, ours is, is nice and clean because sometimes we eat off of it uh, and we don't kill stuff anymore. Um, but like, don't let that picture fade. Right, we have an altar. Bring your sin to it and kill it. 